sometimes there's there's some savings from should be shared. Um, oftentimes we'll take um, the, the the bulk of the the savings, if not if not all of them. But that's not really the value proposition that we're focusing on with with the customer, right? We're not promising them for the most part that their energy budget, that their total energy budget is going to go down. In fact, oftentimes working with Sealed, their total energy budget may go up a little bit because we're, the investment that we have to that we that we make um, means that they're that they may pay a little bit more than they did before. But the value proposition is very strong because the customers are getting what they want, which is a comfortable, uh, healthier, um, and better quality of life. Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks, the podcast where we discuss global energy issues and trends with experts from around the world. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. On this episode, I'll be talking to Andy Frank, an energy efficiency industry expert, president of Sealed, a retrofitting company based in New York, and a board member of Alliance for Clean Energy New York. Welcome to the interview, Andy. Thank you for having me, Markham. Well, look, today we're going to be talking about retrofitting. And uh, American, U.S. homes account for about 20% of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. That's a lot. But it's also, uh, if I understand this correctly, an issue, a problem, a technical issue that can be resolved. We have the technology. It's a question of getting the work done. Would you agree with that? I would, yeah. Um, the, the way that we think about it is, as you mentioned, you know, homes are responsible for about 20% of U.S. carbon emissions. Um, but, uh, but they're both the decarbonizing homes is both the most important as well as the most challenging area to decarbonize. So there's a lot of challenges, most of them, to your point, not technical in how we actually scale up home energy retrofits and decarbonization in the residential sector. So let's talk about the scope of the problem uh, to begin with. So what are what is preventing the United States from electrifying its uh, its homes and basically reducing the GHG emissions from that sector? Great question. So there's really, in our experience, three things um, that are the large consumer barriers um, to the uh, to the adoption of home ret home energy retrofits. That includes electrification, but that also includes things like weatherization, uh, making your homes uh, less less leaky to, to air leaks. Um, and this is important because, um, as we all know, the uh, the kind of the the formula to decarbonize, decarbonizing our homes is very simple, right? It's um, we need to uh, make them as efficient as possible, do things like sealing air leaks. We need to electrify them. We need to change all of our heating systems and other end uses to electricity. And then we need to green the grid, uh, ensure that there's renewable, renewable energy. Um, and the three major barriers are first uh, and foremost, these cost a lot of money. So you need capital to be provided to finance the insulation of things like heat pumps um, and insulation. The second thing, um, which Sealed uh, focuses on a lot, is confidence, or frankly, lack thereof, in energy performance. So, you know, homeowners, uh, consumers are not energy experts, nor do we expect them to be, um, and so they don't oftentimes have confidence that these projects, these technologies, are going to perform the way that you and I know that they do, or at least on average. Um, and the third thing is something that probably everybody can relate to, which is that home improvements are a hassle. Um, you know, I can tell you, Markham, uh, as I 
mentioned before, uh, I'm, a, I'm a recent homeowner myself um, and coordinating contractors, finding the right contractor, knowing what's a good price, knowing what I should even be installing. All of these are barriers to, to action. Um, and so home improvements being a hassle are, you know, the kind of last big barrier that we see in terms of the adoption of home energy retrofits. Now, the kind of things that you just talked about seem to me to be a problem or problems that industry can solve uh, much more than government. Would you agree with that? I think that there is a really important role for industry and there's also a really important for government and policy. And I think the, the challenge is to make sure that uh, industry, that the market is focusing on the problems that the market can, can solve and that policy and government is providing supplemental uh, policies that really enhance the ability of the market to be successful. What we like to think of as market aligned policies as opposed to policies that may crowd out or replace the market. Um, and I'm happy to talk about you know, how sealed, you know, what, how we think we're doing our part in meeting those, meeting those challenges, but we do think there's a role both for the market as well as for policy. You know, a couple of years ago, I interviewed Professor Lucas Davis, who's with the Haas Energy Institute at the University of Berkeley. And he had written a blog post about the percentage of American homes that were, uh, had switched to a, uh, air conditioning and, and powered by electricity. It was something like 62% over the last 50 years. And the biggest driver of that was energy, electricity prices. And so now we're seeing, you know, the switch to uh, wind and solar and batteries, which is, you know, we're talking about two or three, four cents a kilowatt hour to generate electricity. Is that going to be a, a big help over the next, say, 10, 20, 30 years as the U.S. electrifies its uh, residential building stock? So I think that price, uh, energy prices are always a driver um, in terms of adoption and how quickly different areas uh, adopt technologies compared to others. Um, but I would say in, in our experience, in SEALD's experience, um, the biggest drivers of adoption actually have nothing to do with, with energy at all. They have to do with quality of life. Um, so what we've seen up close is the reason that someone will weatherize their home, will install heat pumps, will put in a smart thermostat, um, doesn't have to do with, with energy or energy bill savings. It has to do with the very simple fact that their home was uncomfortable, right? There was um, uh, drafty rooms in one area or uneven temperatures um, and they wanted to solve that problem. Again, I can tell you personally, being in a home that is definitely not sealed today, um, it was extremely cold in the winter. It still is cold sometimes, even as the, even as the, as the temperature has warmed up. Uh, and my wife and I, right, we can be in two separate rooms. I'll be too cold, she'll be too hot. Right? And so the technologies that we've seen um, get adoption are really driven more by quality of life impacts than anything else. Um, we've had customers, for example, and I, I, this is, this is, I'm not making this up, who literally keep hair dryers next to their bed. Um, and in the winter, they will not get out of bed without blow drying their, basically blow drying their body to be able to warm up, to be able to get out. So what we found is actually the biggest drivers of adoption have to do with quality of life and wanting to improve that quality of life. Now, do energy prices play a role in adoption, you know, one place or another? Of course. 
But we've kind of found that uh, the first, you know, similar to that movie Fight Club, the first rule of Fight Club is don't talk about Fight Club. The first rule of selling energy efficiency is don't talk about energy efficiency. You talk about comfort, you talk about health, you talk about safety, you talk about all the things that really motivate people to act, and you use the energy savings as a way to make it affordable. What about the culture? What about uh, sort of the ideology, political uh, politics of green energy, of climate change? And I bring this up because I did a, uh, an interview with uh, a, an analyst oh, about 18 months ago, and it was a survey of electric vehicle uh, customers. And at that time, uh, they were still fit a profile. They were, you know, 30 to 40. They were professionals uh, with you know middle to high incomes and they were plugged into the the you know the green movement they they were concerned about climate change that was a that was a big motivator now i think that's changing uh, as electric vehicles become more mainstream there's now a, any number of reasons why people buy them but that's the way it was 18 uh, months 2 years ago does that play a role in people wanting to ret retrofit their homes I would say, um, Mark, I would say similarly to um, the, the drivers around energy prices, I think that the ideological drivers are true for some people and can move the, move the needle along the margins. But again, the vast majority of sealed customers and the vast majority of adoption we see in the market generally is not driven about by ideology, right? We have customers who are Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, Independents, um, and the commonality is they all have a problem that they want to solve, right? A, a home uh, that is uh, that has uneven temperatures has no ideology. Um, you know, I remember um, uh, being in a home uh, of a customer who, you know, frankly was probably towards the the, the conservative end of the of the spectrum, um, and we were going through his house, um, and he was talking about all the problems that he that he felt, and he, um, in a little bit uh, less polite language than I'll tell you now basically just kind of broke down and said, I just don't want to be freaking cold anymore. And that was just kind of the emotion that he had and the reason he wanted to, to solve the problem. And so what we've seen is solving that problem really goes across the ideological spectrum. And there are certainly some customers who care more about being sustainable and climate change and global warming. But I'll also tell you, and this is backed by a lot of, a lot of studies, it is, it is almost never the primary motivation to be able to adopt clean technologies. Um, and so what we've seen is while it's certainly something we're proud of and certainly something that we wanna talk about with our customers in terms of being greener for the planet, um, it's not something that by itself can really be a sufficient motivator to get most people to make the types of um, changes that they need to make in their home to be, to be more energy efficient and to decarbonize their home. Well, Andy, we've talked a bit about the problem. Well, so let's talk about the solution. And uh, we'll be talking about some specifics. And one of the specifics I want to discuss is heat pumps. Because uh, in our house on uh, Vancouver Island, this is a fairly temperate. Uh, we don't get down below zero centigrade uh, or Celsius uh, very often uh, during a winter. But heat pumps are kind of iffy because they draw their uh, heat from the air and below you know, about seven degrees Celsius, that's a bit of a problem and they don't work as, as well. So we're kind of on the fence actually about whether we should go with uh, a new gas furnace with a, an AC unit or go with the 
with the, uh, the heat pump. And, uh, and I know you're a heat pump fan. So let's use our example uh, just to illustrate the point. Uh, what's your take on all of that? I think it's, first off, I think it's a great question. I think it's a question that many um, homeowners and building owners across North America and beyond are, are asking themselves um, every day. Um, the, the first thing I would say is um, I think we first need to be honest with ourselves around what fossil fuel heat does and doesn't do. Um, as I mentioned, I'm living in a home that is currently fueled by, by fossil fuel. I plan to, to get a heat pump uh, later, later this year, early next. Um, and so, you know, people a lot of times talk about uh, what you refer to as cold climate heat pumps, right? Heat pumps that can work in cold weather as well as in warmer weather. But I have to tell you that my home right now, um, even though it's fueled by fossil fuel, is not, <laughs> I don't feel like I have a cold climate uh, boiler, right? I don't have a cold climate fossil fuel unit, and that's because my home isn't sealed and my unit is, is old and breaking down. So I think we first have to acknowledge that any heating system, no matter, you know, what kind it is, can produce results that you don't want. So how you design it and how you think about it is really the most important thing. But second, and more to your more, more to your question, the great news is that the technologies that have come out over the last 10 years or so can, um, can be effective in almost any weather range. Um, they're installing heat pumps in, um, in you know, northern Minnesota right now that are meeting the entire load of the home. Uh, you have uh, countries in Europe like Norway and Sweden that have uh, adopted heat pumps at you know massive levels that are orders of magnitude what we've adopted in 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 the U.S. and in Canada. So it's possible the technology is there. The key is you have to design the system to meet the heating load of your of your home. So it's not just the technology itself; it's how you design it. And the other important factor is how that um, integrates with your building shell and weatherization. So with heat pumps, it, they're especially sensitive to how um, how much air your your home is leaking. Um, and to just kind of kind of quantify that a little bit, for an average home in in the U.S. or Canada, um, uh, there are little tiny air leaks. So it's the reason we're one of the reasons we're called seals, right? Is because we want to seal those those air leaks. And if you add up all those little holes in your home, it's basically the equivalent to keeping a big window open all year round. So the first thing you need to do is make sure that you're closing or sealing those holes so that the air can't get can't get in and out of your home. Once you do that, however, um, putting in heat pumps, as long as they're sized correctly and designed for your home, will not only keep your home comfortable um, and warm, it'll keep it more comfortable on average than with, your, than with your fossil fuel system. So what we believe here at Sealed and what we've seen with our, with our customers is that not only are heat pumps viable, but they're actually a much bigger step up in quality of life, right? They can keep you more comfortable. Uh, they're cleaner air, cleaner, healthier air. Uh, even temperatures throughout the home, more control, and they're also simpler. They're one unit that does both heating and cooling, as opposed to having to uh, take up a lot of space in your home, having both a heating system and a cooling system. Um, so, you know, I'm biased, but I would definitely recommend uh, that you uh, that you uh, look into uh, into heat pumps for your next uh, your next uh, heating and cooling upgrade. Now, you recently wrote a piece on LinkedIn that also talked uh, about energy efficient appliances. And I gather that that's going to be a focus of the Biden administration going forward, you know, these regulations and standards and, and upgrading those. And can you tell us a little bit about those? Uh, sure. So, um, you know, the, the way that we think about the, the, the scale of the problem in terms of what needs to be done is uh, in the U.S., I can't, I can't speak to, 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 to Canada, but in the U.S., um, at our current pace, 
of adoption, it will take over 500 years for us to retrofit every home in, the, in, 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 in our housing stock in the U.S. Um, as you know, and as probably your, your listeners know, we don't have 50 years to do that, much less 500. So the scale change that has to occur in terms of home energy retrofits, electrification, weatherizing our homes is really, you know, an, at least an order of magnitude, if not more than what we've kind of done, done to date. So certainly, you know, we think part of the solution and the reason that, you know, I, I, I started the company is we think companies like Sealed are part of that solution and being able to address those market challenges that we talked about before, you know, covering the upfront costs, uh, providing um, performance financing. So we take the uh, take the risk that the, the projects are actually going to perform. So if you uh, if you if you uh, work with Sealed, you only pay us based on the actual energy you save. Right. So that's second piece. And then hassle. We we manage everything, we coordinate everything. So again, we're an example of kind of the market piece. But all of that said, we think policy um, has a big place uh, role to play as well. Um, and so what we really look at though, is less um, how much money is being spent and more how that money is spent and what the complementary policies that are. So we believe, for example, that, um, uh, that getting performance standards uh, uh, right, having intelligence performance standards on appliances and other, other technologies is actually the most effective policy tool um, that policymakers have. And it also happens to be the least cost. Um, happy, to, happy to talk more about that, but that's kind of the way we think about it is smart policy is more important than the total amount of money that's being invested in the Biden plan or in any other in any, in any other in any other plan. Now, I interview experts, you know, literally all over the world about these kind of questions of, you know, technology, new technology adoption. And one of the issues that comes up doesn't matter whether it's electric vehicles or something like this, is that policy and regulation matter, and they matter a lot. And, uh, you know, the US like Canada is a federation. And so uh, in Canada, a lot of this, the authority that we're talking about for policy and regulation is at the, at the provincial level. The federal government can have objectives and targets and programs and all sorts of things. But in, at the end of the day, it has to bring along the provincial governments and the, their political leaders with them. And then, of course, it always helps if you provide money. Yeah, money is a great persuader. But is that is that kind of the situation that Biden is facing in the U.S., where he has to bring the states along uh, at the same time? Yes and no. So uh, I think, as you as you mentioned, similarly to Canada, you know, the states there's fifty of them, so you know, even more diversity in terms of what you can do. And there is a lot that is regulated at the state level, um, including in some cases appliance standards. So California, for example, is um, has been introducing more aggressive appliance standards that other states may adopt. Um, uh, Nevada actually um, just passed a uh, appliance standards bill this, this past weekend that moves the ball forward. Many other states are kind of uh, um, are pushing appliance standards, but the federal government can um, uh, can provide standards that apply to all states. Um, and this is not a new thing. Um, the, 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 this is not a Biden administration specific thing. We've been providing appliance standards, the federal government specifically has been providing appliance standards since essentially the start of the modern you know, energy and environmental movement back in the, back in the 70s and, and, and 1980s. 
The thing that's different now um, for uh, the kinds of appliances that we really need to transform, specifically heating and cooling, um, is that we can now go beyond 100%. So uh, in a traditional um, boiler furnace, for example, the best you could possibly do is have a standard that goes to 100% efficiency, right? That, uh, that, that potential furnace that you're, you're thinking of, of changing out, right? The best, you know, you could possibly do is to hit 100% efficiency and, and, you know, you can't hit that. You can hit maybe 99 or 95 or, or what have you. But with heat pumps, um, they actually go beyond 100%. So a heat pump, because it's moving heat rather than creating heat, can actually produce more than one unit of heat for a single unit of energy. So, for example, if you have an air source heat pump, you can produce three units of heat for every one unit of, unit of energy that you put in. So what that means is, in our perspective, is that you should think differently about how you set those standards. So instead of setting a minimum standard that everyone needs to meet for a specific technology, you should have more aggressive standards, go beyond 100%, have a standard that has a goal of, uh, of 150%, let's say, but also build flexibility because the manufacturers of those HVAC units can have a fleet-wide a, a fleet average, similarly to how they do regulation for cars in the U.S., so that you can actually incentivize the, um, the manufacturers to produce more and more heat pumps and actually compete against each other. Um, so one of the things that a lot of people don't know is that one of the big reasons Tesla is profitable is because they actually get paid by their competitors um, to, to basically sell emissions credits based on their, the amount of, uh, of electric cars that they sell. So similarly, you can have a situation where the, more, the cleaner manufacturers are essentially being subsidized by their uh, less clean competitors if you create the right um, appliance standards. So are those standards, uh, are those particular standards, that uh, credit, is that a federal or a provincial, uh, uh, sorry, state responsibility? So it's historically been a federal responsibility, but the states can um, can add on to that. So it's actually a situation where both the federal government as well as state governments can move the needle um, because you can have states that provide standards that go beyond the federal minimums. And you can also have the federal government, you know, essentially increase what those minimum standards are. Now, in the LinkedIn piece that you wrote, Andy, I was very interested to see you argue that equality, uh, access, equal access to uh, retrofitting is really, really important. And you, I think you argued that um, you know, 40% of federal funds targeted for low-income areas is even too low. It should be more than that. Can you expand on that a bit for us, please? Sure. So, you know, one of the... Um... The, the values that SEALD um, takes very seriously is access. Um, and we think that um, it's not only the right thing to do um, to make sure that uh, clean energy can be accessible for all, but it's a practical thing to do, right? We, we cannot meet our very ambitious clean energy goals if we leave behind um, those among us that are, that are the, the least fortunate or the most, most challenged. So we know that there's always going to be uh, limited government and utility funding, right? That's just that's just the fact. There's only there's only so much so much money, so many resources in the world, and we think that if you're if you're trying to put together the um, a plan that's going to get our entire economy to net zero in the in the next 30 years in the timeframes that we're talking to, you can't do that unless you're making sure you're making it accessible 
unless you're sure you're making it possible for low-income Americans to be able to make that transition. Um, and that means taking the dollars that we do have um, and making sure that those dollars are being as concentrated as possible in working with those Americans um, or, or Canadians in the Canadian context um, that um, are, can afford it the least, right? These are, as I mentioned, these are not cheap things to do, and there are ways to make it easier for everyone to do them. Um, but we think that the the um, the focus of investment should be on those that that can that are that are least able to to um, to finance it or at least able to afford it themselves. Final question, Andy, and I, I find this very interesting. Again, you mentioned in your LinkedIn article about the uh, the federal green bank that helps private companies uh, electrify and reduce their their energy consumption. And we've been talking mostly in the, about the res residential context today, but let's talk about, about uh, commercial, uh, commercial applications, uh, because that, that's also a huge building stock that uh, will need to be, to be retrofitted. So uh, do you think that the, I assume you think that the Green Bank would be a key player of that? Yeah, so we, so you know we're we're a little biased here because our um, project finance capital um, has initially come from the New York Green Bank. So we've seen the promise of green banks um, and being able to um, encourage innovation. And the thing that's really important about green banks is that their uh, their capital that can be leveraged and then can be eventually replaced and amplified by private capital. Um, so you know a lot of people think of them uh, just as more money. And the truth is there's a lot of, uh, in today's interest rate environment in particular, there's a lot of capital that's out there. So I think part of the fallacy when people think about how we're gonna finance the clean energy revolution is they think that it all has to come from government money. And the, the truth is, and the, and the great news is, it doesn't, right? There is lots of private capital that's out there that wants to invest in these technologies, but it's different, right? So for example, you know, sealed, uh, makes our money off of measuring the energy reductions that occur from, from, from residential efficiency projects. That's a very different thing, right? No one had done that before. And so the New York Green Bank, because of their mandate, was able to take a risk on a new kind of financial product that hadn't, hadn't happened before. And that can be the same, can be the same for commercial projects, for, you know, for multifamily projects, for any number of things. And so we see the, the, the goal and the really promise of something like a, like a federal green bank um, as being able to encourage additional innovation and be able to take risks that at least initially the private market's not going, mar private market is not going to, but is eventually going to be able to step in and be able to scale. Uh, just, uh, Andy, you've alluded to SEAL's uh, business model a few times, and maybe we should talk about that just a bit uh, to wrap up the, the, the interview. Uh, could you explain to me, you know, how do you make money? And, and uh, it sounds like you, you make money when your clients, your customers uh, save money. That's exactly right. So we SEAL, very simply, SEAL makes money when our customers save energy. Um, so we finance and coordinate, um, you know, key home improvements, the energy saving, uh, energy saving home improvements that we've talked about, heat pumps, weatherization, et cetera. Um, and we put up the capital to install those improvements. And then we're only paid based on the actual energy that's, that's, that, that's saved. So we're, 
um, the first company that's really putting our money where our mouth is when it comes to home energy retrofits, um, which is, we, again, we think is a really important thing um, because the performance of these projects, while we are very confident in them and we've got the, the data to prove it, most people don't. Um, early on at Sealed, we ran a survey and we asked people, um, how, um, how much money do you think you would save if an auditor came to your home and told you you would save $100 from doing a retrofit? And the average is $25. So in other words, an average consumer, an average homeowner is discounting the value of energy savings 25 cents on the dollar. So we're kind of stepping in and saying, you actually don't have to worry about that. We'll put up our capital. And if this project doesn't perform, that's on us. That's not on you. But maybe you can ex help ex explain the, the details of that. So using that $100 uh, example, uh, if there is uh, $75 left on the table. Uh, do you share in that $75? So going back to one thing I said before, um, we actually have found that it's, it's less important to the customer that they share in that $75 than we make sure that those dollars are improving the comfort, health, and quality of life of, of, the, of the customer. So, you know, any individual contract is, is going to be different. Sometimes there's there's some savings from should be shared. Um, oftentimes we'll take um, the, the the bulk of the, the savings, if not if not all of them. But that's not really the value proposition that we're focusing on with, with the customer, right? We're not promising them for the most part that their energy budget, that their total energy budget is going to go down. In fact, oftentimes working with sealed, their total energy budget may go up a little bit because we're, the investment that we have to that we that we make um, means that they're that they may pay a little bit more than they did before. But the value proposition is very strong because the customers are getting what they want, which is a comfortable, uh, healthier, um, and better quality of life. So again, we really uh, have a different point of view, I would say, than most people in the industry that focus on energy bill savings, on, on reducing your your energy bills, saving energy. Um, we really think that. While performance is important and accountability is important, the thing that's the the, the biggest value proposition to the customer is is um, how comfortable they can be, whether their daughter's room is, is is warm in the winter, whether their house feels like a sauna in the summer, and whether they can breathe healthy air while they're inside. Andy, uh, really appreciate your uh, insights into energy efficiency in the U.S. and retrofitting the, the building stock there. Uh, good luck with your business, and thank you very much for doing this. Thank you, Markham. Appreciate it.